Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan and I'm afraid this week there's just myself because Mark's poorly um, and so we weren't really sure if we were even going to be able to record together, whether he'd be better, but he's still a bit poorly. So please do send him your best wishes and um, yeah, I do apologise because I know you guys don't love it when it's a solo episode, but hopefully you won't hate it too much. We're going to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, first of all. So even though Mark's not here with me, I know that he'd be saying thank you as well. So we have to thank Jane Allen, Hannah, Carla Stewart, Heidi, Sophia Francesca, Mandy, Sammy Knighton, Alice Davis, Jay Ashmore, Tina, Sarah, Lisa Leonard, Amanda Fitzgerald and Kaylee Jane. So a huge thank you to these guys and of course all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you'd like to join them and support us on Patreon and you'll get all of the bonus content that we talk about all the time, book club, bonus episodes, crime wave, please head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and have a little look and see if it's something that would interest you. This week, we are going to go to the east coast of North America and dive headlong into a shocking unsolved murder from 1996. In the true crime space, unsolved murders can often evoke a lot of emotion. Not only can the sheer injustice of them alone be a source of intense frustration, but the constant reminders that there are violent and often murderous criminals walking among us is, quite frankly, terrifying. According to London's Metropolitan Police Statistics, roughly 10% of all murder cases are never solved. So that accounts for 100 out of every 1,000. And there have been upwards of 3,000 murder cases in London alone since 2002. So that means that in London itself, there are potentially upwards of 350 violent killers walking among us. Terrifying. On a more personal level, however, for the families of the victims, the lack of justice can lead to perpetual torment, countless painful yet unanswered questions, years of unresolved grief and an endless insatiable longing for closure and justice. The pursuit of truth in these instances requires a tenacious dedication from law enforcement and the collective effort of the public. Unsolved murders, such as the one we're going to cover today, serve as a stark reminder of the complexities of human nature, the fragility of life, and the urgent need for continued efforts to bring solace and resolution to those affected. And this brings us to Karina Homer, a young Swedish au pair whose life was tragically cut short in the US state of Massachusetts in 1996. The case, still to this day, stands as a haunting and unsolved mystery that continues to grip the public's attention. Karina's disappearance and subsequent murder in the vibrant city of Boston shocked the community and sparked a relentless pursuit of justice. Her story raises profound questions about personal safety, the vulnerabilities faced by young women, and the challenges encountered in solving such heinous crimes. This introduction sets the stage for a deeper exploration of the Karina Homer case, delving into the details of her life, the circumstances surrounding her disappearance, the subsequent investigation, and the enduring impact of her tragic fate. Karina Homer was born on October the 4th, 1977, in Skillingory, and a small rural town about 150 miles southwest of Stockholm in Sweden. Born into a loving and supportive family, Karina was the youngest of four siblings and was cherished by her parents and siblings alike. Even as a child, Karina was adventurous and loved to be outdoors. 
And as much as she appreciated nature and the captivating beauty in, of her hometown, she disliked the feeling of being cut off from the world, living out in the sticks. She dreamed endlessly of being able to travel as soon as she was old enough. And as she grew older, she developed into a strikingly beautiful young woman with blonde hair and stunning features. She had a lot of friends who described her as funny, witty and vibrant. She was instantly liked by everyone she crossed paths with and she was described by many to be a unique and endearing soul to be around. As Karina entered her late teens, she was beginning to feel more and more restless. Her dream to escape her quiet hometown and see the world had only intensified with age, so she began to make real plans. And that dream came unexpectedly true with a stroke of fortune in 1996, when Karina was 19 years old. She won 30,000 Swedish kroner, which is about £1,500, on a lottery scratch card. This wasn't an enormous jackpot, but for Karina, it could not have come at a better time. For months, Karina had been saving hard to finally leave her sleepy Swedish hometown and see the world. She'd already joined an agency in Stockholm, which specialised in matching young Swedish women with wealthy families in the USA to travel over there to work as au pairs. Now, typically, an au pair is a young foreign woman who helps with housework and childcare in exchange for food, a room and some pocket money. The agency had only recently come back to Karina to tell her that they'd found a prospective job for her and her lottery win meant that she could now afford the flight ticket and she'd still have some cash left to keep her going once she got there. Karina was elated. Travel was her passion and her lifelong dream was to go and explore the USA and that dream was coming true. The decision to leave Sweden not only offered her a chance to experience American culture firsthand, but also provided her with the opportunity to improve her English language skills and to broaden her horizons. Knowing how much this meant to her, Karina's family were equally thrilled for her. With their love and their blessings, Karina booked a one-way flight to Boston. On the 6th of March 1996, Karina's father, Ola, drove his youngest daughter to the airport and as he hugged his daughter goodbye for what would be the final time, she said to him, I hope that I'm doing the right thing. Boston is a historic and vibrant city located in the state of Massachusetts in the northeastern United States. As the capital of Massachusetts and as one of the oldest cities in the country, Boston is renowned for its rich history, charming architecture and academic institutions. The city is a cultural hub boasting world-class museums, theatres and sports teams such as the Boston Red Sox. Boston is also known for its prestigious universities including Harvard and MIT which contribute to its intellectual and innovative atmosphere. With iconic landmarks like the Freedom Trail, Fenway Park and Quincy Market, Boston offers a unique blend of tradition and modernity attracting tourists and residents alike with this diverse neighbourhoods, with its culinary delights and with its strong sense of community. Karina Homer arrived in Boston on the 7th of March 1996 and, through her Swedish au pair agency, found work in the affluent suburb of Dover, an uptown suburb known to be one of the wealthiest bits of Massachusetts, situated just a few short miles outside of downtown Boston. Karina was employed to care for the two young children of two successful artists. So Frank Rapp was an esteemed photographer and his wife, Susan Nichter, a renowned painter. The family welcomed Karina into their home with open arms and did all they could to make her feel welcome and safe. They set her up with her own private loft apartment not far from their home and gave her every weekend off as well as a generous weekly allowance to spend however she pleased. 
For a young foreign au pair like Karina, it was an exceptionally fantastic deal. Karina was excited about the prospect of immersing herself in a new culture, meeting new people and exploring the vibrant city. She seemed to assimilate her into her new occupation and environment quite seamlessly in the first couple of months that she resided in America. The two children that she was hired to care for were extremely fond of her and Karina was described as a dedicated, funny, patient and helpful employee. By all accounts, everything was going tremendously and everyone was happy. Karina made a big effort to connect with the wider local community and it didn't take her long to create an active social life for herself. The agency provided her with the contact details of other Swedish au pairs within Boston and before long Karina became part of a little Swedish au pair community. On her weekends off Karina and her new friends would go into Boston to experience the kind of nightlife that rural Sweden had never been able to offer her. Karina was an adventurous young woman in a foreign country with a fake ID and access to her employer's South Boston studio apartment. So even though she wasn't legally old enough to drink in the USA, she and her network of friends would attend various clubs, boozing and dancing until the early morning hours. Her favourite nightclub was Zanzibar, a vibrant and bustling East African-themed venue in downtown Boston, which was known for its energetic atmosphere and diverse clientele. Karina and her friends would frequent the Zanzibar on an almost weekly basis, and she even went there to celebrate her 20th birthday, which obviously, 21 in America. So to all outward appearances, it looked as if she was having the time of her life and living her dream. Little did she know, however, that her journey was about to take a tragic turn, forever altering the course of her life and leaving an indelible mark on those who knew her and the wider community. So Karina had now been in the USA for about three months. Keep in mind that it was 1996 and the internet as we now know it was still in its infancy. Social media wasn't a thing and email was still a really new alien concept to the vast majority of the world's populace. So therefore, Karina was keeping in touch with her friends and family back home via letters and the occasional long distance phone call. At first, the tone of her letters had been happy and glowing, and although she expressed feelings of homesickness, which you would obviously expect, she would write passionately about how amazing her new life was and how happy she was. But soon enough, the bright and optimistic toned letters that Karina would send to family and friends slowly gave way to letters of a much darker, deeply unsettling nature. In one letter to her parents, Karina expressed that she planned to cut her trip short, remarking that life in America was not as she'd hoped. And in another letter sent to her best friend Ulrika, she wrote, Something terrible has happened. I cannot tell you right now what it is, but I will tell you when I get home. We do not know what terrible event Karina was referring to, and we're unlikely to ever find out. Karina would never see Ulrika or her family again. Now we are going to take a short break here and hear from this week's show sponsor. One of the most exciting holidays in Swedish culture is Midsummer, a beloved and widely celebrated festival that takes place on the weekend closest to the summer solstice, on or around June the 21st, which marks the longest day of the year. Midsummer festivities are rooted in ancient pagan traditions and have evolved into a vibrant cultural event. Swedes gather in the countryside or the public parks to celebrate with family and friends. They don traditional folk costumes, decorate maypoles with flowers and greenery, and participate in lively dances and singing. The festival is characterised by the joyous spirit of community, delicious traditional foods such as herring and new potatoes, and the heavy consumption of alcohol. Sounds like my kind of celebration. 
Midsummer holds a special place in Swedish culture, symbolising the arrival of summer and fostering a deep connection to nature and heritage. And I just love this. I love summer. I love nature. It just sounds, it sounds like me. In 1996, Midsummer landed on the weekend of June the 21st. Karina was already feeling homesick and she desperately wanted to honour her Midsummer traditions as a way to feel more connected and closer to home. So she called some of her fellow Scandinavian au pair friends and arranged a night out in Boston to celebrate. From 6pm onwards, Karina and her friends jovially got ready at her loft apartment before heading into Boston to celebrate this Swedish summer solstice celebration, but from thousands of miles away. They planned to do a bar crawl in the Boylston area, a well-known part of the city that features an abundance of bars and nightclubs and is known as a popular place for international tourists to party and socialise. And then the plan was to head to Karina's favourite club, Zanzibar. So the group of six women entered Zanzibar just before 10 o'clock that night and Karina was observed by other patrons of the club drinking, dancing, laughing and having a wonderful time. By two o'clock in the morning... Karina was noted by the door staff to be heavily intoxicated and was asked to leave Zanzibar. She made no fuss whatsoever and left on her own accord. However, for reasons which will forever remain unknown, she didn't go home. Instead, she hung around outside the club for well over an hour. She was observed by passers-by complaining loudly about being abandoned by her friends. And she was then seen happily dancing and singing in the alley outside Zanzibar with a homeless man at around 3.20am. Eventually, her friends emerged from the club and allegedly tried to get Karina to get in the car and go home with them, but she drunkenly declined. Karina was last seen at Tremont Street and Boylston Place. The last person to see her recalled her talking with two unidentified males in a parked car. The boyfriend of one of Karina's friends spotted Karina sitting inside a car with two men and he leaned into the car and said, let's go, you can come with us, referring to himself and the other group of friends. And then one of the men in the car angrily replied with, get away from the car, you little bitch, or I'll crush your fucking head. There were no further sightings of Karina that night. On Sunday, June the 23rd, the day before Karina was due back in Dover to resume work with the children, her employer, Frank Rapp, received a call from one of Karina's friends. The friend sounded worried and asked Frank if he'd heard anything from Karina, explaining that nobody had seen her or heard from her since the midsummer party at Zanzibar. Of course, Frank hadn't heard from Karina either, but he'd assumed that she was off doing her own thing just as she did every weekend. Feeling that something was off, Frank headed over to Karina's loft apartment to check in on her. After knocking at the door and getting no response, he let himself in. The place was empty and it was clear to Frank that nobody had been in the apartment since Karina had left to go to Boston on that Friday night. Frank waited all day and most of that evening for Karina to return to the apartment, but as darkness fell, the decision was made to report Karina as a missing person to the Boston Police Department. At around the same time that this was happening, a homeless man rifled through a dumpster in the Back Bay neighbourhood of Boston, searching for any food or any cans that he could recycle for cash, anything that he could potentially want. As he sifted through the piles of rubbish, he grabbed hold of a dark green trash bag to find it was unusually heavy. His curiosity peaked, the man ripped into the top of the bag, but immediately recoiled in horror. As soon as his brain could comprehend what it was that he was staring at, he frenziedly ran down Boston Street, screaming for help. Boston police arrived at the site of the dumpster. The trash bag was removed and its gruesome contents would go on to haunt the officers dispatched to the scene for years to come. At first glance, a human arm could be seen, a woman's arm with manicured hands and varnished fingernails, 
and the trash bag, weighing £48 in total, contained only the top half of this woman's body, which had been haphazardly severed at the torso. Investigators sifted through the remainder of the dumpster, looking for the bag that contained her bottom half, but no such bag was found. The body was later formally identified by Frank Rapp, who confirmed that this was indeed the body of Karina Homer. At just 20 years of age, the beautiful and adventurous young Swede, who was loved by many, was dead. Clear markings on Karina's neck alluded to strangulation by rope or cord, and the autopsy confirmed that this was the cause of death. It was also discovered that the messy bisection of Karina's body had likely been performed using an electric saw. Judging by the uneven and jagged edges of her severed torso, homicide detectives theorised that this killer was young and inexperienced, and this was, in all likelihood, his or her first murder. Karina's makeup had been removed, and her body had been washed clean post-mortem, prior to being wrapped and dumped. In the wake of Karina's disappearance and murder, her family back in Sweden experienced unimaginable grief and sought answers to the mysteries surrounding her case. They tirelessly cooperated with law enforcement agencies and the media, hoping to bring justice to their beloved daughter and sister. The Boston Police Department began a citywide search of other dumpsters in an attempt to locate the lower half of her body. Nearby lakes and rivers were also combed for the remnants of Karina and sniffer dogs were deployed in the search of Frank Rapp's loft apartment that Karina had been staying in, but the dogs did not hit on anything in the building. News of the slain young foreigner circulated through Boston at warp speed and the gruesome realisation that a murderer was on the loose in the city only served to proliferate the panic of its citizens. The case generated a media frenzy in the USA and in Sweden. This created several problems and obstacles for the Boston police detectives, who found themselves hounded relentlessly by hungry journalists, constantly trespassing on the crime scene to get pictures, and approaching police officers for comments. Karina's grief-stricken family and friends in Sweden were also harassed. Speaking to the press, a friend of Karina's attributed the tragedy to cultural differences and customs that Karina was not accustomed to, explaining that Karina's small hometown in Sweden was an exceptionally safe place, almost completely void of violent crime. Boston, on the other hand, represented real danger. It required much more vigilance and caution. Karina was a happy-go-lucky, vibrant and trusting young woman, but she wasn't particularly streetwise, and therefore she probably failed to recognise the extreme danger that she'd found herself in that night until it was far too late. Back in Boston, the police commissioner addressed the city's residents via the media and urged them not to be fearful, stressing that they did not believe a serial killer was on the prowl and that the young women of the city could still feel at ease whilst maintaining some degree of caution and vigilance. As is often the case, the media handled the story horribly. They wrongly portrayed portrayed Karina as a promiscuous party animal who had a drink problem and kept bad company, branding her the party animal of party animals. Now, Karina's employers, Frank Rapp and Susan Nichter, they quickly responded to these cruel and baseless allegations and they stated publicly, Karina rarely drank to excess and was overall a modest and respectable woman who worked hard and was no trouble whatsoever. Meanwhile, a forensic analysis of the trash bag that Karina's torso was found in was conducted and a partial fingerprint was able to be lifted from the surface of the bag Investigators attempted to track down the brand of bag, hopefully leading to a manufacturer, but this line of inquiry ultimately failed to generate any promising leads. And similarly, the fingerprint was never matched to its owner, and this too proved to be useless. 
Investigators also discovered that Karina had been casually hooking up with a Boston police officer in the time before her death, but he was rolled out as a suspect almost immediately. And it was also discovered that Karina did not have the proper visa documentation to be working in the USA, and that the Swedish agency that had employed Karina in the first place had done so illegally. Despite violent crime and murder being far from unheard of in Boston, the police detectives were deeply perplexed by this particularly barbaric and the very cruel nature of this killing. The fact that Karina's lower half wasn't dumped along with the top half struck investigators as a curious detail. They theorised that this could have been done to hide incriminating DNA left within the body after a sexual assault. And criminal psychologists also theorised that even though the killer was inexperienced, he was clearly very intelligent, cunning and calculated and had gone to great and ultimately successful lengths to destroy vital forensic evidence. The meticulous way in which the killer had disposed of the body, leaving behind almost no clues whatsoever, indicated strongly that he hadn't panicked in the wake of the murder and had taken time to thoroughly think things through before taking action. They rationalised that this perpetrator may be an inexperienced first-time offender, but that he may suffer from a mental illness and soon be tempted to kill again. Speaking to the media a few days after Karina's discovery, one of the lead investigators on the murder investigation commented, we're not talking about some bizarre maniac here. Either it's someone who had some kind of relationship with Karina, or we're talking about a stranger who has a great deal of control over his behaviour, who could very well have a job and neighbours and friends, but for whom rape and murder are carried out for pleasure. On Sunday the 30th of June 1996, a week after Karina's body was found, several of her Swedish and USA-based friends and family members gathered in Boston Public Gardens across the road from Zanzibar to honour Karina with a memorial service. Afterwards, the group went to the dumpster where her body was found and decorated it with colourful flowers. As this touching tribute to Karina was taking place, homicide detectives watched discreetly from a distance and videoed the event, hoping to spot a person of interest amongst the group. Afterwards, the police interviewed several of the attendees in order to further ascertain Karina's final movements on the night that she vanished. The immediate problem they were facing was the fact that her murder had occurred during Midsummer Weekend and almost all the witnesses who had seen Karina in Zanzibar that night had themselves also been intoxicated. So their collective recollection of the night was hazy at best and totally inconsistent at worst. However, several of them witnessed Karina getting friendly with two well-dressed men just an hour or so before she was asked to leave the club. It could not be determined whether or not these two men were the same threatening individuals that Karina had been sitting in a car with later that night. The police publicly appealed for these two men to come forward, but they heard nothing, and to this day nobody knows their identities. The police also spent months searching tirelessly for the bottom half of Karina's body, hoping that it could be recovered and maybe provide them with crucial forensic evidence. However, the whereabouts of Karina's missing remains are yet another mystery of the case that has yet to be solved. In late July, the upper half of Karina's body was repatriated to her family in Sweden and she was given a burial and a private funeral service in her hometown. Mourners were encouraged to wear brightly coloured clothes in celebration of Karina's love of life and her vibrant personality. The murder investigation that followed was frustratingly slow. Over the course of several months, investigators interviewed over 300 persons of interest in connection with the murder. Controversially, one of those people was Frank Rapp, so Karina's employer and the father of the children that she'd been paid to look after. 
Despite Rapp having previously provided the police with what appeared to be an airtight alibi that was corroborated by his family, he was still examined closely by detectives, due in no small part to several details and odd behaviours which seemed to be very suspicious. For example, shortly after Karina's body was found, the police were dispatched to a dumpster fire outside of Frank and Susan's apartment and charred clothing was turned over to Boston police. Now, detectives were unable to determine whether these had belonged to Karina. A trash transfer station not far from Frank Rapp's home was also searched when it was discovered that Frank had obtained a permit to dump trash there the very day after Karina went missing. And it didn't take the media long to pick up on the Frank Rapp line of inquiry. Rumours began to circulate of a possible physical relationship between Karina and Frank, and many former nannies of the artist couple came forward, claiming that Rapp had been actually sexually inappropriate towards them. This, coupled with those letters that Karina had sent back to her friends and family in Sweden, planted ideas of a possible unwanted pregnancy or some other secret that Rapp may have been hiding. Frank Rapp was subjected to hours of questioning in which he strenuously denied any involvement in Karina's killing. Despite all of this, the police were unable to find any solid evidence of Frank Rapp's involvement in Karina's death and he was eventually eliminated. He's never been arrested in connection with the case, but he does remain a suspect to this day. The homeless man that Karina was seen dancing with in the alleyway next to Zanzibar was tracked down and identified as 39-year-old Juan Paolo. Like Frank Rapp, Juan also struck the investigators as a highly suspicious character. He had a long and extensive criminal history, he was known by the police to be a violent criminal and rapist, and upon deeper inspection, the investigators discovered that Juan's ex-girlfriend had been found murdered in a dumpster in the same general area as Karina, less than a year prior. Juan had originally been made a suspect in his ex-girlfriend's murder, but was ultimately never charged with anything. Juan's ex-girlfriend, however, had not been chopped up after death like Karina had, and her cause of death was multiple stabbings, whereas Karina was strangled. So therefore, it was ultimately decided that the two murders were not linked, and Juan was dropped as a suspect. Elsewhere, 19-year-old John Zeiss, the lead singer of a local rock band, was also interrogated by the police, mostly due to his patronage at Zanzibar as lyricised in some of his songs, and the location of his apartment, which was just two blocks from where Karina's body had been discovered. John also had a reputation for being peculiar. He had a large animal bone collection, and his band's shows often carried adult themes relating to S&M and bondage. Furthermore, Zeiss had been struggling with an ongoing heroin addiction, and was said to be unpredictable, impulsive, and violent as a result. However, as before, there wasn't anything that definitively connected John to Karina, and police ruled him out as a suspect too. And then the man that was found to be in the area of Boston Street within the time frame that Karina went missing was Herb Witten, a man in his late 40s who was known to casually peruse the streets of Boston alone as bars were closing to pick up and take advantage of intoxicated women. And witnesses reported seeing Witten speaking to Karina on the night of her disappearance. Witten was brought in for questioning and extensively examined, but the police excluded him as a suspect when it was found out that he was stopped and given a speeding ticket on his way home in the night in question, so he could not possibly have been responsible for Karina's disappearance. So Herb was ruled out, obviously. Um, However, within a year of Karina's homicide, Herb Witten inexplicably committed suicide, To this day, the media still unjustifiably speculate that he ended his life because he couldn't live with the guilt of having killed Karina. And I just think that's really sad if the media are still going on about this and the police proved it wasn't him. 
With each suspect that the Boston police were forced to eliminate, they found themselves moving further and further away from the truth. Almost six months of fruitless investigation went past and the case was threatening to go cold. And then in December 1996, the police briefly believed that they'd gotten the breakthrough that they'd been hoping for. So Gregory Hummel, a violent criminal with a string of sexual offences to his name, was arrested after attacking a woman that he picked up at Zanzibar. So that same nightclub where Karina had been on the night that she went missing. Hummel had taken the woman back to his apartment where he punched her in the face and sexually assaulted her. She managed bravely to lock herself in his bathroom with his mobile phone and called police. As word of Hummel's arrest unfolded in the local news, he began to look more and more suspicious, and it seemed he would have had ample opportunity and resources to pull off the murder of a Swedish au pair just months prior. Hummel worked for a real estate brokerage in the Boston area and rented out several of his own properties as well. As he was responsible for the maintenance of the buildings he owned, he was in possession of not only all the necessary instruments to dismember a body, but several open locations in which to do so. An investigation uncovered that the attack on this unidentified woman wasn't the only time that he'd done something similar. He frequently picked women up outside nightclubs and then attacked them. However, once again, after extensive and rigorous forensic examination of all of Hummel's properties, nothing of value to the case was found. He, like the others, was never arrested in connection with Karina's homicide. On June the 21st, 1997, so a year exactly after Karina's death, the police admitted defeat and conceded that her murder was now considered a cold case. The announcement came as a major disappointment to Karina's family, who urged the people of Boston to be extra vigilant with the knowledge that a violent murderer walked in the shadows amongst them. Today, a small framed picture of Karina Homer hangs on the wall of the Boston Police Department's homicide squad, a constant reminder of their unfinished business. Since the day Karina was killed, a total of zero people have been arrested, and justice for her gruesome and cruel murder continues to evade her. Karina's family demonstrated immense strength and determination throughout the ordeal, tirelessly advocating for her and raising awareness about her case. They attended vigils, participated in interviews, and utilised various platforms to keep Karina's memory alive and seek the truth about her demise. The loss of Karina undoubtedly had a profound and lasting impact on her family, forever altering their lives. They continue to carry the weight of her memory and the quest for justice. And their unwavering commitment serves as a testament to the enduring love that they have for Karina. Now, nearly 25 years after the teenager's savage killing, the Boston Police Department still continues to seek leads in the decades-old unsolved slaying. Just last year, the Boston Police Department released a statement relating to Karina's case, reiterating their unwavering commitment to getting justice for her. The statement contained the following. As the anniversary of her tragic death approaches, investigators assigned to the BPD Unsolved Homicide Unit are seeking the public's help to solve this heinous crime. Any piece of information, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, could make a tremendous difference in the course of this decades-long investigation. So in conclusion, the case of Karina Homer remains a haunting and unsolved tragedy that continues to captivate the public's attention. Karina's disappearance and brutal murder in 1996 shook the city of Boston and left her family and the community devastated. Despite extensive investigations and ongoing efforts, the identity of her killer remains elusive, denying her family the closure that they so desperately seek. 
Karina's case serves as a stark reminder of the challenges faced in solving complex crimes and the lasting impact that such tragedies have on the lives of those left behind. While the search for answers continues, Karina Homer's memory lives on, reminding us of the importance of seeking justice, supporting victims and striving to prevent similar senseless acts of violence. Thank you so much for joining me once again, guys. Thank you for joining me for this episode. And I don't know if Mark's going to be well enough to be back with me next week. But if he's not, um, I've got some very exciting special guests that we were going to be talking to together um, who I might still get to come on the show even without him. If he is better, great. You'll have us both in the special guests but otherwise um all will be revealed once we know where he is and how how he's doing so it just remains me to thank you once again for joining me and do check out our show sponsor which is better help and if you'd like to have a look at patreon it's patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast we're also on buymeacoffee.com have a look at our link tree that Mark's put together for some cases that we'd like you to revisit if you have the time and join us on social media. I'm sure most of you already are on social media, but we've got some great, we've got a great Instagram page and we've got a great Facebook page to chat with everyone. And we're also on threads now, which is very exciting, although I still don't really know what I'm using it for. If anybody wants to help me out with that, please do. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.